this is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles to John chapter 20 this morning as we continue to work our way through the gospel of John. And today we're going to talk about dealing with doubt. Maybe you're here today and you've got questions about Christianity, questions about what the good news of Christ is all about. Or maybe you're here today as a committed Christian, but yet we all know as we try to grow in Christ that the real battle from day to day is learning to trust God. It's just all kinds of ways. Every day we encounter challenges and issues. And the question is, are we going to trust God? Are we going to believe or disbelieve in that moment? And so dealing with doubt is something that all of us have to deal with. What does God's Word tell us about that? John chapter 20. And let's look this morning at verses 24 and following, if you'll follow along in your Bible. It says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails... And place my finger into the mark of the nails. And place my hand into his side. I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. And see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did Many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in His name. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would take your word right now and help us to understand it, help us to apply it. Father, whether there are serious questions about the central truths of Christianity or whether we are committed Christians who are seeking to walk by faith every day, this text has a message for us. And so, Father, we pray that you would Help us now to just lock in, let everything else fade away, and lock in and listen to you. Grow us 
Form us. Encounter us right now by the power of your Spirit through your Word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. There are many, many reasons that people doubt. For some, it's a lack of understanding about what Christianity really is. People think that they have rejected the gospel, but the real problem is that they've never actually understood it. They don't understand what they're rejecting. Friday night, I read a wonderful, touching piece by Kirsten Powers, a journalist, and sometimes she appears on Fox News. And Kirsten was sharing her story, and she was talking about the fact that she had been raised in a secular, unbelieving home. As an adult, almost all of her friends had been completely secular And then God gave her a Christian friend. And he invited her to go to church with him at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. And she was just captivated by the biblical and gospel-centered preaching of Tim Keller. And it drove her to the Bible. And so for about six months... She began to read the Bible, and she kept attending church, and she got involved in a Bible study. And at the end of that process, she said, I was confronted by a stark reality. She said, it dawned on me, this is true. This is true. And that means I've got to do something with this truth. I've known people like Kirsten. Sally is a NASA scientist. She's a member at the church that I served in Yorktown. And she had grown up as a skeptic, unbelieving background, and as an adult really was between atheism and agnosticism. And then her teenage daughter came to faith in Christ through our youth group. And mom wondered, what on earth has happened to my daughter? I mean, what is, what is going on? Has this child lost her mind? Has she joined some sort of a Baptist cult? You know, what's going on? And so, to check out what we were all about, she came to one of our services, and it was not what she expected. She found herself liking it. And she was intrigued by what she was hearing And she began to read the Bible. She kept attending church. She read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And after several months, she came up to me after a worship service. And she looked at me and she said, I just want you to know, I'm there. I've crossed the line. She just needed to understand She had rejected all her life what she really didn't understand. And some people are like that. For others, their doubt is really about a deeper ulterior motive. Like the the student who claims to have intellectual hang-ups about Christianity, but their real hang-up is that they want to keep on partying. And they know that a relationship with Jesus would impact their lifestyle. Aldous Huxley was one of the best-known atheists of the 20th century. 
And Huxley, as a college student, was part of a circle of friends, and they all claimed to have intellectual hang-ups about the Bible, about Christianity. But later in life, in a moment of remarkable candor, Huxley confessed that, you know, our, ha- our intellectual hang-ups about Christianity were really about our sexual freedom. It wasn't about in a real intellectual hang-ups at all. It was about sex. And he knew that a commitment to Christ would necessitate changes in sexual behavior. And that was really what was at the root of so-called doubt. And sometimes that happens with people. There's something deeper that's going on. They say they, say they doubt for one reason, but there's something that's deeper that's, that's, that's going on. For other people, it's about a crisis. Doubt has been brought on by depressing, uh, debilitating grief, loss, pain, or abuse. I mean, think about those Roman Catholic children in Massachusetts who were not only sexually abused for years by their priest, but as if, if, if that wasn't horrible enough to have their church cover it up for years. That could certainly bring about doubt. Why did Thomas doubt? And how did Jesus deal with his doubt? And what does this say to us? Let's try to put ourselves in the position of the disciples right after the crucifixion. What's going on in their minds and hearts? They left everything three years earlier to follow Jesus. And they've been amazed by what they've heard him say and the things that they've seen him do. And all of their hopes have centered on Christ. They had hoped that Christ was the, Jesus, that Jesus was the Messiah of Israel, that, that Jesus was going to restore all things. The one thing they had not expected was that the Messiah was going to be killed. And not only killed, but killed in the most horrible way imaginable on a cross. And in that moment, as Jesus died, something else died. Their dream died. Hope died. And so as we've been seeing, they, after the crucifixion, they gathered behind locked doors in this room in Jerusalem, just lying low for a few days until the air could kind of clear and they could safely come out and make their way back to the north, back to Galilee, and just get back to their normal lives, to their fishing nets or whatever. Hope was gone. They were not in that room behind locked doors saying, you know, I can't wait until Sunday gets here. Not at all. They hadn't been expecting crucifixion, and they weren't expecting resurrection. 
until it happened. And so Jesus appears to them, but not to all of them. So verse 24 tells us that Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. We don't know where he was when Christ appeared to the others, but Thomas was not there, and so naturally they tried to tell him what happened. They say in verse 25, we have seen the Lord. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to look at Thomas's reaction to this in stages. And the first stage that we see is the cry of an anguished skeptic. The cry of an anguished skeptic. We see it in verse 25. He said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now listen, Thomas is no materialist. He's no naturalist who rejects the supernatural. Thomas is a devout Jew, and not only a devout Jew, but he's followed Jesus around for three years. He's been an eyewitness to all kinds of miracles, so he doesn't intellectually reject miracles. It's not that. He's seen plenty of miracles. But he's also seen the crucifixion. He has seen the horror of that. And all of his hopes, which had centered on Christ as the Messiah, all of those hopes had just been shattered like a piece of glass shattered into a million pieces. And so Thomas has been burned. His hopes have been shattered. His, his dreams have died, disillusioned. That's what happened to a whole generation of people in the aftermath of the First World War. They had been raised in the gilded age of the early 1900s, one of the most optimistic times in human history. They believed anything was possible for human beings. And, and, and here they were, young people with their, their futures stretched out before them, full of optimism, full of hope. And then for the flimsiest of ego-driven reasons, their governments uh, sent them to the front to battle, sent them off with bands playing, with flags waving. Hey, this is going to be glorious. And they went to the front, and instead of glory, they encountered the horror of trenches. 2,300 miles of trenches, mud, rats, filth, Death. Vast armies facing one another just hundreds of yards apart from one another with howitzers and machine guns and commanders who sent them over the top again and again and again to be mowed down or blown apart. 37 million people. 
killed or their bodies mangled. And what did it achieve militarily? A few thousand yards here or there. And what did it achieve diplomatically? It just laid the foundation for another world war 20 years later. And this generation came back from that experience and, and disillusioned so that they, were, they became known as the lost generation. That's where Thomas is. That's exactly where he is. He is disillusioned. He's feeling pain. I mean, you can hear the pain here, can't you? And what he says, he's reciting what happens in a crucifixion. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side where the spear went in. You can hear pain, deep pain in those words as he just recites the horror of crucifixion. Now, if you're active in trying to help people come to know Christ, and I hope that you are, and if you're not active in doing that, that you'll become active in doing that. But the more active that you become in sharing your faith in Christ and talking to people about Jesus the more that you will encounter people in various stages of doubt. And you know what? Part of becoming a good witness is becoming a good listener. You've got to hear people in order to help people. You've got to hear where they're coming from. You've got to hear their heart if they have doubt, you've got to help them process through that. You've got to be willing to listen here so that you're able to help. We can understand Thomas's anguish here, can't we? So we, we hear the cry of an anguished skeptic. And second, we see the adoration of an astonished Skeptic. Verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Jesus comes into the room, the resurrected Christ, and he speaks, Shalom which as we talked about last week, was used as a common greeting then and now. But when Jesus says it, it's more than just a greeting. It's hard to really translate the full meaning of shalom in English, but it means a deep sense of well-being, of wholeness, peace, true peace. And now, because of what Christ has done, on the cross, and in the resurrection, we have a basis for shalom. The people in that, in that room had a basis for peace. And we, in this room, have a basis for peace, for shalom. Paul tells us about it 
in Romans 5, 1, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of what Jesus has done, we can be made right with God through faith. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, on the cross, Jesus cries out, It is finished! Accomplished! Completed! And because of that, we can live all of life under the banner, it is finished. At peace with God. Now for us, because of what Christ has done on the cross and the fact that that was vindicated by the resurrection, now for us to live as Christ and to die as gain. We have every reason for shalom, every reason to be at peace. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Let's look at Thomas's words a little more closely. I mean, we would expect him to say something like, Lord, you're alive. I'm, I'm sorry, but he says more than that. He confesses Jesus as my Lord and my God. Because in that moment, as the resurrected Christ stands before Thomas, the pieces of the puzzle come together. And so many of the things that Jesus had done and said that he couldn't quite make sense of came together and everything, the fog burned away and everything became clear, could see. And in that moment, it all came rushing in. And maybe he thought of what Jesus had said to Philip in the upper room the night before he went to the cross where Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I, not, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Or maybe Thomas thinks about that day in Jerusalem when Jesus was talking with the religious leaders, and he says to them, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Or maybe Thomas's mind went back to a crowded house in Capernaum early in the ministry of Jesus when people were just packed into this house like sardines and nobody could get inside. And suddenly they hear something above them <laughs> and stuff starts to fall down and it becomes obvious that people are digging a hole in the roof. And these guys lower their paralyzed friend down on a mat right in front of Jesus. And Jesus is going to say to them, to him, I say to you, rise, take up your bed and walk. And the man does. But before he said that, Jesus said something else to the paralyzed man, didn't he? Jesus looked at him and he said, son, your sins 
are forgiven. And the religious leaders kind of gnashed their teeth and said, How can he say that? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who indeed? And all of this is coming together in this moment for Thomas. The truth of what John said at the very beginning of this gospel is coming clear to Thomas. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's all becoming clear. The adoration of an astonished skeptic. Third, we see here the trust of future disciples. That's you and me. Verse 29, Jesus is talking about us. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Because Jesus knows that there are going to be generations of people like us who are going to be called to believe without seeing the resurrected Christ standing in front of us like Thomas was able to do in that moment. And so Jesus is talking about us, but lots of people misinterpret this verse. Lots of people misinterpret this verse. They take it to mean oh, that Jesus is saying, oh, poor Thomas, you know, he had to have evidence in order to believe. You're blessed if you believe without evidence. That is not what Jesus is saying. That is emphatically not what Jesus is saying. He's not calling us to be gullible. He's not calling us to believe uh, without evidence. That's what a lot of people think that faith is. A lot of people in our culture think that faith is like a subjective religious choice that has no relationship with truth. That's not what the Bible encourages us to do. That's not the faith that the Bible encourages. The Bible encourages you to look to real things that happen. Real people, real events that happen in real space and time, real history, and look at the eyewitness evidence to those events and to believe on that basis. Look at how the early Christians preached the gospel. This is an example of it in 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, this is how they preach the gospel. Paul says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Real person, real death. A real death for sins. Took our sins upon himself, paid the penalty that he was buried, okay? This is a body that we're talking about, a real body, buried in a real tomb, and that he was raised on the third day. This is a real body of a real person being raised on the third day. Yes, real space, real time, a real thing that happened in history. And then he appeared to real people He appeared to Cephas and then to 
the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Do you see how they grounded the preaching of the gospel in real things that happened in history? The cross. The resurrection. The eyewitness testimony to the, the resurrection of Christ. And the fact that many of these people were still alive. And the fact that, that these people were willing to pay for this belief in the resurrection of Christ with their lives. They were traveling around the world preaching this truth and willing to die for this truth. The evidence is there. Believe on the basis of that, Paul says. And that's exactly what John is saying as well in verses 30 and 31. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written. Why, John? Why are they written down? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John is not saying, take a leap in the dark. John is saying, take a look at Jesus. Take a look at Jesus. Read the Gospel of John. Look at what Jesus did. Look at all the things that He did. And the eyewitness testimony to the things that He did. Hear what He said. It's not about taking a leap in the dark. It's about looking to the light of the world. Looking to Jesus. And being captivated by what we see. Something real that happened. And then what are we called to do? Believe. Believe. Trust. Trust your life into the hands of this one who died for your sins and was raised. Repent. Turn from trying to do life apart from Him. Change your mind about your sin, about the direction of your life, and do a 180 and turn to Jesus and trust Him. Trust your life into His hands to follow Him as your Savior, your Lord, your King. Everything changes if this is real. And by believing, we have what? We have life. Life in His name. Abundant life. Jesus said in John 10, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. Have it more abundantly. Eternal life. John 3, whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. It's about life, real life. What's your part? Look at the evidence. Look at what Jesus said and did. And believe. Trust. Fall into His arms. Let's pray. Father, I pray for anyone here today who has never believed. Father, I would pray that 
that you would open the eyes of their hearts to repent and trust in Jesus this day. Father, for those of us who have already made a commitment to Christ, this becomes very, very practical on a daily basis as we face a choice in all kinds of ways every day in the challenges and issues of our lives about whether or not we're going to believe, trust in you, walk by faith, or whether we're going to walk by sight and fail to trust and doubt and try to do life on our own. Father, would you deliver us from that? Father, would you enable us to believe you for very, very practical needs day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. Make us people of faith, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here today and you're someone with questions about the gospel and God has spoken to your heart about a commitment to Christ, you know, we don't want you to leave here today without being able to talk to someone. I'm going to be here in just a moment as we stand and sing. We'll be here after the service. Come to us. Share. Or, or maybe you're here today um, and God's speaking to you about being a part of our church family. Welcome. We want you to come today as others stand and sing. If you've got a need in your life that you need to talk with someone about, pray with someone about, don't leave without doing that today. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. 
I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together. Thank you.